Welcome to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Well, Thomas, it's uh, don't know what it's doing over at your place, but boy, it's done got still and dark and eerie, and uh, I think we got some kind of a storm coming. Yeah, man, it's been it's been storming here for a while now. Y'all getting much rain with it? Thunder, lightning, wind? What you got happening? Yeah, yeah, we uh, pretty pretty good rainfall so far, and uh, a lot of thunder and lightning, and right now not much wind, but we'll see yeah it's uh been cloudy all day but overall it's been a pretty nice day we got a bunch of stuff done um we got a section of the farm that uh i've never done anything with we call it the lost 40 and uh just don't ever go over there don't ever really do anything but uh the neighbor girls put a hurting on big bucks over there one of them killed a uh uh 175 and one of them killed a 168 inch and uh um now we've got a little water trapped in there and a few ducks trying to use it so about half of it's flooded right now and man this place is all big virgin timber and it hasn't had any regeneration in a long time um completely closed canopy no sunlight hitting the ground and uh so fixing the vision of doing overhaul on it i went in there and looked at it a while ago and got uh five or six trees down in one spot uh big trees and uh i took trico in there water about half knee deep and moved some trees around made a little opening we can shoot some ducks in maybe here in the next few days and uh and got it on my high priority list now to uh do some habitat work uh, a little tsi in there and some stuff so that uh that kind of leads us into where we're at today with our with our guest. Um, we got a uh, got a special guest that we've been friends with here for a year or so now. Uh, really cool dude, really cool job, um, and uh, he's uh, really habitat minded. Thinks a lot like we do. But uh, Chuck Mays, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, doing good. Thank you guys for having me on. Glad to have you. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I've been in law enforcement for the last 25 years. I just started my 25th year this past September. Uh, I work for the Shelby County Sheriff's Office in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, is essentially what will help everybody guide guide you into where I am. Um, I've had a really cool, really fun career there. I've spent 18 of my 25 years in special operations. I've uh, you know, started as the new guy and, you know, tried out for the SWAT team, made it, you know, way back in 2000. I hate to even admit those numbers anymore, but uh, I spent, uh, originally spent eight years on the SWAT team, worked my way up, eventually got promoted, did a lot of cool things while I was there, got to do, you know, some explosive handler courses and uh, went to, you know, was our team designated marksman, a.k.a. sniper for a while. Uh, then our sniper team leader uh, wound up, you know, through a series of promotion, being the SWAT team commander there for, I think, the last four years. And then it was time to go to our narcotics division for a while. And that includes the undercover narcotics, you know, what what people think we do. Then there's a lot of the other stuff that we actually do where, uh, you know, it, it's just a, a litany of things that in narcotics where I had 
SWAT and narcotics and our canine unit I was in charge of for quite a while. And I love it. That That's kind of where I cut my teeth. You know, you want to stay around what you're used to. And that's kind of what my whole career has been based out of until I was incredibly fortunate to get promoted to chief, not the chief, just one of many chiefs we have. I think there's 12 of us total at the department. Uh, and that's where I am now. Um, crime in Memphis? Really? Y'all got crime? Every now and again, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we, have, we certainly are well known for our moments, I'll tell you that. Well, I was asking, uh, uh, I, ta- I asked you this question the other day, but I'd asked somebody just before that. I said, so, so what are the bad parts of Memphis these days? And they said, well, pretty much all of it. And uh, then I asked you the yeah. same question a little bit later, and, and uh, you pointed out a couple areas that were worse than others. Yeah, we, you know, the, the general guide to Memphis, and, and, and you know, I, I don't want to bag on it too much. It's a great city. I, I was born and raised in the Memphis area. You know, when you need to go to town, so to speak, it was always Memphis. A lot of good memories, a lot of good things going on there. But there's also a lot of areas you need to be really careful while you're there. I tell visitors who don't know much, there's a there's an interstate loop that runs around the 240 loop, we call it, in Memphis. Just stay out of the inside of it, and generally you'll be okay with a few exceptions. <laughs> Okay. Well, any more about the extent of mine is uh, uh, downtown Marriott, Peabody, Bill Street, and uh, but you can feel a little bit eerie down there sometimes too. Yeah, we we're we're like I say, we're well known for our moments every once in a while, and uh, depending on where you are and what's going on, you can you can have a good time or get in trouble in in equal parts. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, so you do a little habitat management. I do. I do. Very fortunate to be uh, raised in a family that that hunts, enjoys the outdoors. I would say that's our primary uh, thing that we have always done as a family, born and raised. I don't live in Memphis proper. I live, uh, I was born and raised northeast of Memphis, uh, I don't know, 20 miles, and grew up with horses, the farm, hunting the whole nine yards, and, and really honestly never let go of it. I started uh, off in school, I, I was going to be a game warden or bust, believe it or not. I guess law enforcement was in my blood. I took, uh, I spent two years in college working towards a zoology degree because that's what they told me I needed to do when the sheriff's office called. And, you know, I pulled the ripcord and that's where I've been ever since. So, yeah, it, my whole life has been around hunting and the outdoors, fishing, you know, some version of that pretty much involves everything I do. I, so how big a farm y'all got up there? We got, it's 400, we have two, two tracts of land. I primarily talk about the one, it's 485 acres. It's in, uh, North, it's in Benton County, Mississippi. It's right on, I can see, literally see Tennessee from the front door of our cabin there. So, uh, due south of the town of Grand Junction, uh, kind of in Nowheresville, Mississippi. Uh, but we, we got 485 acres. It's, it's a beautiful place. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here on this podcast and try to make y'all think I've converted it into this wildlife mecca that it is because I think I heard you say before when it comes to killing ducks, there's two places you can do that where they want to be and where you can talk them into going. That's right. And we don't have ducks, but in terms of deer and turkey, we're where they want to be. We have, like I say, it's 485 acres total, about 175 of it are river bottom in the Wolf River, uh, which is about a hundred mile long river. And I'm in the first 15% of it. Eventually, at the end of it, uh, flows into the Mississippi right there in Memphis. Uh, so we so we have some pretty much virgin river bottom, uh, about 175 acres of that. We got the balance of it's about 230 
acres in grassland, uh, what I, and ag. We got about 80, 80 acres in ag ground, which is new to us. That's something I did when I started becoming more, uh, I guess, educated from the habitat standpoint. Uh, I, I did, I, you know, you, you'll hear mixed things about people's thoughts on ag ground in terms of habitat and how it benefits wildlife. So I, you know, read, studied, did as much as I could and, and wound up putting about 80 acres into production that on ground that's never been in production. And, and because I found a guy who uh, he farms from not, he's not a regenerative farmer in terms of organic or anything like that. We grow GMO corn and we spray Roundup when we have to, but he does, he, he's mindful of the soil biology when he's planting, you know, with his laybys and things like that. And uh, he's uh, what benefits us is also utilizes cover crops. So uh, we don't have a whole lot of food plots because everything after harvest is put into cover crops, which is essentially a food plot for us. Exactly. Oh, and when we put it into, when I did put it into production, I was very careful about, because, you know, we, this farm has existed for years with no ag ground on it. So, you know, any, some ag was better than none for the terms or reasons that we did it. Uh, I was real careful to leave buffers and, you know, gaps in between places for wildlife to get where we just didn't, you know, farm it from tree line to tree line. Okay. Now, Chuck, what I know, what little I know, I should say about Grand Junction is, uh, you know, bird dog museum and, and some pretty good bird dog trials over there, I think still, uh, annually maybe. And, uh, Man, that used to be uh, like quail mecca over there, right? It did. It did. As a matter of fact, that's how it's, it's a long story about how we uh, came to, to be a part of this farm. But that's my, my dad grew up. That was his passion was bird hunting. That, that's all he did, all he cared about. We had bird dogs. We had, you know, that, that was everything. And uh, a friend of his originally owned this farm, and we wound up buying into it. Uh, and that's what they we did every year. You know, you loaded up horses and you went to the nationals there in Grand Junction on the Ames Plantation. And they, uh, my first exposure to that farm was my dad and his friends bird hunted it. And unfortunately, today we we've gone through various various uh, iterations of how many birds we have, but very very few left in that Grand Junction area today. Sadly enough. And that's crazy because that was like, that was the mecca, man. And and uh, there was a Dunn Sporting Goods there, and uh, that, that's all gone away too, I guess. Yeah, Mr. Dunn passed away. Oh man, golly, probably ten years ago now. And of course, the store closed when he when he was gone. But uh, they they still have the Bird Dog uh, Hall of Fame Museum there in Grand Junction, Tennessee, and and it's very open, very nice, and and certainly worth visiting. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I don't know, probably five or six miles from the Ames plantation there where they still hold the nationals every year. Uh, and we're probably five or six miles south of there. So, okay. Well, that's good. That's a good part of the country to be in for sure. It is. Unfortunately, like I say, the quail numbers are, are way down. Matter of fact, it was, it went from, you know, golly, 25 years ago, they were, you know, you could count on five or six pretty steady coveys of birds on this 485 acres and pretty much knew where they'd be, you know, and you could go get into them when you wanted to down to, we were this spring, we were there just kind of loafing after turkey hunting in the morning. And there was a, a quail whistling out towards the, the back of the little cabin there and everybody came running outside to listen to it. So that's, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Wow. 
course, my dad and, and uh, the old guys that hang around there, couldn't any of them hear it. But <laughs> I was hoping uh, it, it got everybody excited because I, I really do feel like a lot of the work we've done there is the reason that we've, you know, seen a few birds, you know, not huntable numbers yet, but maybe one day. That's, I think what we're doing is helping bring them back. Well, let's let's talk about some of that work that you've done, because I, you know, um, I've been pretty impressed with a lot of your posts on Facebook and, and stuff that you've talked about doing and and things you've mentioned about your farm and the wildlife that's using it. So let's let's get into some of the things that you've uh, that you've done since you've been old enough to to take notice and, and be accountable of it. Yeah, it's uh, like I say, I don't want to. Uh, misrepresent what we're doing here. We, we have a great resource and, and in a great location. We're where animals want to be. So my job is not to necessarily fix anything, but prevent it from getting into a condition where it does need some major renovations. We, uh, and, it, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning here, I'm a police officer and you've not seen too many of them that are independently wealthy. So everything I do comes from a, a cost mind you know cost effective standpoint uh and, and my neighbors I'm, I'm lucky i should start off with that that we have probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 acres of like-minded neighbors including myself where we all kind of manage together oh, uh, wow. that was you know that was the first success i had was reaching out to these people you know on saturday middays on saturdays during deer season or whatever we all wind up sitting in the same place so i just started the conversation about hey guys what kind of deer do we want to kill you know how do who's going to burn what this year and you know how, how are you managing for for various things so we that was the first success we had was getting those relationships established with our neighbors that that really helps us have a a, a big footprint rather than just my 500 acres or my neighbor's 600 acres or however it goes but uh the, the biggest and, and most important thing that I've seen from, from getting to see cause and effect is, is the burning that we do. That place has been getting some level of burning for at least 20 years. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. It's it, because again, like I say, the, the original intent for this place was for bird hunting and, and my dad and, and, and our partner in the farm understood that that was important for quail to burn off some of these areas and get some early successional growth going places for them to hide and, you know, the, the cover that quail like. So, this this farm has seen fire, some, some version of fire every year for the last 20 years at least. And, and and that's something I maintain because fire's free. You know, I don't know how much matches cost, but it's pretty close to free. Right. Um, and, you know, to get it more organized since I've kind of come in and, and taken over the management of it, we've divided, I've divided the farm up into thirds. So basically every portion of our farm sees fire at least once every three years. Okay. There's, you know, handful of areas that are just too risky to burn based on a neighbor with cows or something like that. But I would say of the 485 acres, 400 of it sees fire at least once every three years. Man, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And, and, uh, I know you're being a little humble here saying that, uh, you know, you're really not doing a whole lot, but man, uh, fortunately our listeners are all involved and do, do quite a bit, but, uh, the majority of the population isn't doing anything whatsoever. So uh, anybody that's doing anything, you know, they say the, uh, the quickest way to uh, get rid of turkeys on your farm is to do nothing or put in a dollar general. It's both have about the same effect. 
<laughs> That's exactly right. We do a lot of other things, uh, you know, and like I say, because I have a full time job somewhere else, I, I, I would love and, and I hope that there will be a time one day when I can spend every day on this farm. But, uh, you know, burning, it, you get so much impact for for so little time and money invested out of burning, you know, where you're setting back invasives, you're you're setting back some of the woody growth. I, you know, I, I told everybody if I ever wrote a book, the title would be How's the Whole World Not a Gum Thicket? Because at least in our part of the world, man, if you leave something alone for two years, you're going to lose it to gum trees. And right. uh, I know they're a plant and they do have some purpose, but man, if you leave, you know, like I say, left unattended, that's all I'll have. So, you know, second to burning, we, I do a lot of invasive control. And, and again, from a cost saving standpoint, um, you know, herbicides are relatively cheap based on the return I get from them. Um, the, the biggest Invasives I fight is Cerisa lespedeza, autumn olive, and fescue. Yep. Uh, and sometimes we got uh, into this place. It was uh, a guy had cows on the place, so he sprigged a lot of fescue. And I'm about 85% successful in getting rid of it at this point. The the autumn olive, I wish uh, <laughs> I wish I couldn't say that was introduced on purpose back. Uh, and, and I even called. Uh, Jack, our partner in the farm, he, he's a older gentleman, been around a long time, and he's he's an expert record keeper at these things. The the autumn olive was given to him by the state to uh, be planted for the benefit of the quail. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 25 ish, 20, 25 ish years later, and, you know, I'm fighting this stuff tooth and nail every, you know, as soon as deer season's over every year, I'm out there doing cut stump treatments and, you know, pushing it in piles and burning it and, you know, trying to get rid of the seeds left over. And the Cerisa, I, you know, again, it was in cows. So I would assume that's how I wound up with most of it. And, you know, uh, I get a lot of mileage out of trichlopyr. So <laughs> between the Cerisa and the cut stump treatments, and again, you know, all those methods, I hadn't spent a whole lot of money yet. And uh, putting the land in row, I made the decision and man, we had to have a round table about that because the guys that my dad and, and our partner in the farm, you know, grew up was at a bird hunting place. They wanted to see that big blue stem and the broom sedge and all the places where they found coveys of birds. So it was, it was a little bit of an ordeal to talk them into putting in. And like I say, we only put about 15% of it in row crop, but the, the income generated from that uh, helps offset the cost. Pretty much revenue neutral at this point. We got some grain bins that we rent out as well, but uh, it's pretty much neutral on my habitat restoration stuff. The only the only thing that's that uh, that costs anything is my time, and I'm glad to do it. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit. How how do you juggle your full time job? How do you juggle your full time job and have time to do habitat work? I hear a lot of people say. Well, I work full time. I just don't have time to do anything on the farm. I, I'm not even going to lie. She's she's over here in the room with me now. My wife has been extremely generous in, in letting me. I'm, I'm at the farm every weekend. My friends laugh and joke about, hey, do you want it? And then they'll stop at mid-sentence and I'll chuckle be at the farm this weekend. It's just what I do. It's what I love to do. Uh, and, and it's, you know, I mentioned that career in law enforcement and, you know, that comes with their a heavy toll sometimes. And that that's really been therapeutic for me to get out there and spend. Man, there's nothing better than getting out there on a Saturday morning after deer season's over. I don't have to worry about who's coming hunting this weekend or, you know, what I got to take care of. And, you know, just controlling invasives or, or doing some TSI. 
So I, I, it's a focus of mine, I guess, is the point. I spend most weekends, and I probably spend at least a week or two of vacation every year. You know, when the time's right, we've got a good window to burn, or, you know, I need to get some some uh, some of the areas we can't burn, I need to get cut to set back the, the early successional growth. But it's, it's just, you know, saying you don't have time means you're probably finding your time somewhere else. And it's just, it's my focus. That's what I want to do. And it's important to me. And I have two sons that, and one of them uh, has a child of his own that we just found out is going to be a boy on the way. So I'm hoping to make this a legacy property where, you know, my kids and grandkids get to spend some time and hopefully get, well, I know both my boys love to hunt. My youngest son's is finishing his last year of college. He's already called me twice this week to tell me he'll be in Friday and he's ready to go. Awesome, man. That's cool. And congratulations on the grandbaby on the way. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Sometimes I feel like I'm still a grandbaby, but here we come, you know. <laughs> I understand. Um, no, talking about some of that stuff that was uh, that people planted years ago. So my stepdad passed away, um, I guess it's been four years ago now, and was going through some stuff in his shop and found a bag of seed, and it said uh, USDA on it, Cerecia lespedeza seed and uh it was some that that you know what back in the i don't know when it was 70s 80s uh that they gave away seed you know and that's planted for erosion control and for quail and for deer habitat and you know it's kind of took over the world i don't know that there's a a levy around um that doesn't have cerecia lespedeza growing on it around here yeah, it's it's prolific. And, and, and like I say, and, and it's funny to sit around with my dad and them, you know, who came from that area, era when that stuff uh, we had cows growing up. So most of, of his knowledge is based in either, you know, what he liked, you know, what he saw work while he was bird hunting or what was good for cows and Cerisa Lespedeza. You know, it was great for erosion control. It's a legume. It creates its own nitrogen. And, you know, you just throw that stuff down in an area that was trying to get away from you and it would hold ground great. But it just, you know, come to find out where we sit today doesn't do a whole lot of good in the end. Right. Right. Invasive. And and uh, I've got uh, up on the hill farm, got fields full of it that we're trying, you know, old cattle farm and fescue and Cerisa lespedeza and Chinese privet and tree of heaven and it's just uh it would be a full-time job for somebody for the next four or five years just trying to get rid of invasives on some of that um crazy but um so uh what have you saw your quail numbers do since you started managing a little heavier of course if you've been burning y'all probably always had quail i'm sure you saw a decline like most everybody has but i bet it's not as bad as your neighbors when you get outside your 2000 acre area is it no it's it's not and, and fortunate because we've been in that area a long time i know people for miles around uh but honestly I, I think we're the only people in that area that you could talk to that say they see a quail or hear a quail anymore yep. uh, so, so i do i do uh seriously think and, and again all those things i listed that we do uh burning has to be in my mind, you know, again, from putting something out there and seeing what the result is, it comes back. Burning is by far the biggest return. And, uh, you know, what I found, it turkeys is our thing now. We have a really, really strong turkey population. You've seen some of the pictures and videos I take. They're my entertainment while I'm deer hunting. 
And, uh, you know, you can burn off a field and, and people are worried about the impact that it has on the wildlife temporarily and things like that. And I've literally got pictures and videos of turkeys moving out into a field that's still smoking to scratch okay. around. And, and I think the quail see that as the same benefit because it exposes a lot of food for them. You know, there's a lot of seed left in the ground from overwinter that, that you know, you get that dead thatch off the top of and they, man, they love to get in there and get after it. Well, how in the world do you have turkeys? Is there not any predators in North Mississippi? <laughs> we have more than our fair share of predators. Um, you know, that's, I love to see those conversations on Facebook or social media. They're, they get quite entertaining at times. And, and I can tell you, we do trap some, but the trapping we do is not because we're trying to save turkeys. It's because me and my kids want to find another reason to get outside in late January, early February. And, you know, an old timer told me a long time ago, deer hunting is one thing when you're sitting there waiting on one to walk by. And sure, there's some strategy about putting yourself in the right place where they want to be. But if you really want to learn how an animal thinks and behaves, learn how to trap. And, and yeah, so that's that, exactly right. That, you know, we we have like i say we have i have about a little over a mile of that river that's on our farm i have land on both sides of it and as you know in a in a river bottom we we i mean i could trap probably a hundred raccoons a month and never knock a dent in them but um, what i've found is if you create you know you got to get uh, through the burning and the invasive control and all that you create brood habitat what i've learned is if you manage for turkeys you make everything happy uh, deer are pretty easy and they'll they'll just get in where they fit in. But if you're creating nesting cover and good brood cover, I've never seen where where the where the coons or the bobcats or the coyotes or any of the suspects that get blamed for turkey declines. We've we've never we've never noticed the years I've noticed we've had a dips in population. The ebb and flow in a population is generally weather related. Right. Right. Yeah. That that's uh, I grew up trapping. My dad trapped. Of course, back then, you know. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, a guy could make more money trapping than you could at most jobs. And, you know, that's uh, that's how we had Christmas every year. Dad would trap early uh, and, and about a week or two weeks before Christmas, he would sell all of his furs and we'd use that money. That's what we had Christmas and and paid some bills on in the winter. And, uh, you know, so I grew up with it. And like you say, man, it's when when you uh when you can take a critter and narrow it down to get him to put his foot on a two inch circle and make him set off that pan. Um, to me, that's, that's reward enough. Um, you know, and I used to be one of these that thought, you know, trapping predators, we were saving the wildlife, but I know that's, that's not the case anymore. Thomas, you, you've done some trapping you and, um, uh, Caleb have got out and done some trap in the last couple of years for fun and, and stuff, haven't you? Oh yeah. 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 It's just, you know, I, I haven't set a trap now in, in a couple of years. Um, and I, I think the, the big, the biggest struggle I see, you know, is people think one predator removed equals one Turkey saved. And, and that's not how it works. And, um, you know, tra trapping is, is not the answer to, you know, revitalizing our turkey population. Um, it, it, they're just, there's just so many flawed concepts about that. But if you enjoy it, like Chuck said, you're trying to get your kid out there, you're learning more about the outdoors, you know, you're doing some other stuff. And if those are your goals, then man, by all means, I say, go do it. Um, 
you know, it, it can be very fun, very interesting, uh, can teach you a lot about, about different animals and, and scent control and, and all kinds of stuff. Very interesting. That's right. That's right. Um, so Chuck with your neighbors, what kind of deal do y'all have? Are y'all talking about your turkey population and the number of poach you're seeing and when you see quail and are you sharing uh information on which bucks you're shooting and not shooting this year and and uh you doing all that plus sharing ideals about habitat management and things too we are my my neighbors uh one in particular is where i learned a lot about habitat management he he is the burn guy i mean it from and, and primarily because of the way the ag runs and different reasons, he, he's primarily focused on dormant season burns. That's the best window for him and, you know, to not cause issues for somebody and neighbors and other things. But so he's the one that really got me into that, man. You, can, you can't get within 10 miles of, of our area from early February through mid-March and not see smoke somewhere. So we're, we're constantly on the phone talking about that because uh, what I did notice, especially when you're dealing with a particular piece of property, and, and while we do have a, a good co-op amongst all our neighbors, uh, we, we did one year, we had perfect burn conditions and we burned this third and man, that went great. Hey, it's only 1030. Let's, let's go ahead and do, we wound up burning the whole farm one year and uh, it, it it needed it. Uh, things were just going good and, and, and you guys burn a lot. So you know what I'm talking about when you, uh, a good burn window is so hard to catch. Either wind's not blowing enough. It's blowing too hard. It's too much. The humidity's too high, whatever it may be. We just caught a good window and got a little carried away and, and our farm. And, and that was a dormant season burn that year. And our farm, I told my dad, it looked like the moon uh, for <laughs> until, you know, we got some warm temperatures in April. And we did notice uh, we, we still killed turkeys. We still hunted turkeys, but we did notice a difference. And that's what caused me to really, you know, focus on that burning in thirds, making a plan. I heard one of the previous podcasts you guys did with the landowner uh, that, that I just shook my head in agreeance the whole time with somebody, I think y'all asked him, you know, how do you, how do you manage this with the time you're allowed having a full-time job somewhere else? And, you know, feeling like you're getting enough done. And, and he immediately jumped into something that I learned the hard way, pick a spot, you know, pick, pick this old field that has, that's overgrown with fescue or cerise or whatever, and stay in it till you get done and then move on to the next one. Cause what you find out if you're, you know, riding through there on the side by side with your drip torch or whatever, you, 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 you know, like a chicken with his head cut off, so to speak. And you wind up getting a bunch of time spent and very little done. So, so just picking a spot and, and and to your original question I, I do talk to my neighbors he's like hey I'm gonna burn the west side of my place in the next two weeks well I'll leave the east side of my place you know for later on in the year so we kind of have some breaks in those burn lines and to give the wildlife a place to get and you know because I, we don't have a lot of serious weather in in you know February and early March in North Mississippi but we we are known to get down in the teens and 20s and you can cause a big shift in those animals and what they where they seek cover and, and where they find food if you overdo it sometimes so tell you talking to your neighbors when you do have what i would say you know it takes several thousand acres to control to have your animals so to speak my deer herd you know where i know i have deer that are staying on me all the time i have to work with my neighbors to know you know and, and we share trail camera pictures you know we again fortunate that we don't have the 
I don't think we do anyway. The neighbors who don't show you the big deer and show you the average size deer, well, this is all I got this year. So I think we found out over time that if we're honest with each other and say, hey, look, I got this deer, but he's only three and a half years old. He's, you know, he's 140 inch 10 point, but man, if we can hold off of him until next year. And, and everybody over the time has seen the benefits of that. And, and it's just in a position now where, now that everybody has seen how good it works, it, it, it feeds itself. Everybody wants to be involved. Everybody wants to talk and share trail camera pictures. That's right. That's right. And, you know, a lot of people don't like to share those big bucks. Um, you get a, a short enough stud on camera, but, you know, it really helps motivate your neighbors and those around you to do more. And, and you know, I, I know I saw some of that this year. Um, we've got some planted trees that are part of uh, National Wildlife Refuge to the north of where I live and on this place that I live on. And they are holding some monster bucks and some of that. You know, it's just a grown-up natural thicket. And, uh, you know, it's it sparked me uh, seeing some of the bucks they've got up there uh, coming out. Uh, it sparked me to want to do a little bit more here. Uh, we've always been focused on waterfowl on this farm. And I've done a little bit here and there for some, some deer habitat. But you know, that, uh, whatever you want to call it. I think me and Thomas decided we're going to start calling it buck sanctuaries. Is that what we decided? Yeah. But, yeah. So, something other than a bedding thicket. Yeah. Because they serve <laughs> so many different purposes, um, from predator management to food sources, to fawning cover, to everything. But, um, yeah, that's, that's great stuff. And then when you can, you know, it's still ultimately up to your neighbor. They own the neighboring farm, but you know, when you can tell him, Hey, we've got this buck on camera and he is a pretty good one, but he's young and you know, y'all can do what you want, but just know we're not going to shoot that deer over here. Um, you know, it takes a, takes some weight off of their minds and, and they're like, well, you know, if they're not going to shoot it and we don't shoot it, there's a good chance that it can make it to four and a half or five and a half and a three and a half year old 140. He's probably going to be record books here in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for our part of the world. We don't, you know, I'd love to have some of the, I mean, a, a hundred, our neighbor, my neighbor to the North, not connected by a property line. They killed a legit 165 this year during both season. And that, that's a, that's a, that's a monster for our area. You know, you, you can get in the one forties and occasionally the one fifties, you know, if you're managing your property, uh, but it, it's, it's paying off. And it, even though he's a mile and a half from me, property line to property line, here's another 500 acres of a guy who thinks the same way and we're sharing the same pictures. So, you know, it, I, the way I approach that, no, nobody likes to be told what to do on their own property. And, and I've seen, you know, neighbors have some pretty severe disagreements over, you know, well, why you keep shooting over those four points? Why'd you shoot that spike? You need, why couldn't you just kill a doe? That all makes perfect sense. But, not to a man who spent a lot of money and on his own ground and he wants to do what he wants to do. So if you can lead people to conclusions rather than telling them what you want, I found a lot more success. And that's, that's literally how I started was by showing, say, Hey, look, here's some trail camera pictures. I was the one who came forward with that and just said, Hey, look, here's the pictures of the deer. I've seen this one twice. And you know, this one, I, I think I know where he is. I'm not going to shoot him. If I see him, I didn't tell them not to. And, right. and then, you know, next year when, one of them or us kills that deer and you can go come put your hands on it. That, that sells itself. You know, I don't, you know, cause I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want somebody to tell me how many turkeys we should or shouldn't kill this year or what we should or shouldn't, but I sure will listen to a neighbor who can show me pictures and, and positive results. You know, I'm right. not gonna... right. And we do that quite a bit too. You know, we'll try to take a Turkey inventory 
And, uh, you know, I'll tell the neighbors on our hill farm that, you know, we will not shoot any more. Like last year, I told them we will not shoot any more than three gobblers on this 1,200-acre block. Um, that is the maximum we'll kill. And we ended up shooting one. But, uh, you know, I just can't, you know, I know there's more than what I'm seeing. But when I've identified 10 mature birds, I don't want to take over half of them, you know. Um, and I, I really wish your neighbors wouldn't either. So if they know that we're not going to shoot over three, then maybe they'll do something similar. Right, because the opposite to that is, is, oh, man, Hunter said there's only 10 birds. I better hurry up and kill a few if he thinks right. you're going to do thing so yeah it's, it, you know i've just like i say i found out that communicating with your neighbors and again i'm fortunate we have people that are easy to get along with that are like-minded you know my neighbor has grandkids that he doesn't even deer hunt anymore but he's out there every weekend every day he lives on his farm he's out there every day manipulating the habitat doing something to make things better for his grandkids so he, he's heavily invested and so are we and it, it, it's worked out for us really really well well this um uh... One thing I got to bring up, and it's just I'm I'm fascinated by it, but uh, and I'm gonna let Thomas tell the story. But um, you know, we done a, a episode with Adam Keith of Land and Legacy uh, that we titled uh, "How to Eat an Elephant and Eat It One Bite at a Time." And like you were saying a while ago about um, you know, don't get overwhelmed. Just pick a spot and and do what you need to do in that spot. Well, Thomas met with someone yesterday and they looked at his property and, you know, you can get overwhelmed pretty easy and it's easy to pick up the phone and call a contractor and say, hey, come up here and reduce all of my uh, basal area by 20% or by 30%. But Thomas and, and uh, uh, a uh, uh, consultant or one of one of the Quail Forever um, farm bill biologist walked some of his property yesterday and uh, uh tell us about that thomas about you know you got some spots that may just be an acre or two that just need a little bit and uh some spots that may be a little bit bigger so none of it's really getting the same prescription so to briefly tell us about some some of your what you ran into yesterday and then it really made sense to me when you talked about it and uh sure breaks it down where it's easier to manage like that yeah um you know, the first time I, I was kind of introduced, I went to to a class and, and you know, was kind of formally introduced to habitat management, wildlife management. You know, that guy said, break everything up in 80 acre blocks. And that way, his rule of thumb was that's every 80 acre block needs certain things to provide for deer. And, um, you know, you can just address those and you can keep good records for them and you can rotate, you know, like, like Chuck's doing rotational burn or like at, at your other farm that, that you do, you, you've blocked it up maybe into, did you do hundred acre blocks up there, Hunter? Well, I just divided it by access road. So I divided ours as 1200 acres, divided it into seven different blocks, but it's how we access them and not really acreage or anything like that. Okay. And then, you've got those numbered and on the numbers that are the odd numbers will get burned during odd years and the evens will get burned during, during the even years. Yes. So, you know, that's one way uh, of doing things. Um, you know, and if, if all you have is a 40 acre block, then you may look at doing something different uh, there. Um, 
and and I look at too, man, I'm the guy that's bad about, uh, man, I, I bet, um, I could hang, I could hang six stands in a 25 acre section of woods, uh, because I, I like different options and I, I might be seeing the same deer from those same stands, but even when I blocked everything up, uh, I tried to say, okay, I don't want more than one shooting house in, in each section. Now, as far as bow stands and stuff like that, they can put up as many of them as they want. But, um, you know, I tried to not only do things that were habitat related, but, but also hunting related and all that good stuff. But what, what got me going further down the rabbit hole was, uh, when you and I were here with, uh, Ryan Diener and we got to looking at, uh, you know, some different parts of the woods and, uh, subtle changes that, that, you know, he saw and pointed out to us in different, basically different ecotypes, um, you know, what should be there historically, what's there now and how to get it back there. And, um, uh, so what I'm, I'm, I'm going down a whole nother rabbit hole now of trying to do more restoration, like ecotype restoration versus, you know, I'm just managing for whatever. So what I really want to do is take, um, uh, certain areas if not all of of my wooded areas and put them back like they should be historically before uh you know the the white guy showed up that kind of a deal so in doing that you know you're, you're trying to figure out what what does that even mean what does it look like how do you figure that out you know what 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 trees do you take? Do you leave? So, you know, it's like I told you earlier and, uh, Chuck can, Chuck can relate to this very well. Uh, um, my, I came to Memphis for a year of my life. I'll never get back. <laughs> and, uh, man, I don't envy you at all, but I came over there investigating fires and, uh, man, holy Moses, that's a whole different gig. But you know, when, when they, if you progress and, and you start doing the dance with an attorney, they want you to say, well, is fire investigation a science or is it an art? Well, it's a little bit of both. And, and really habitat management's the same way. You need a little bit of science and you need a little bit of art. And I think what I told you today is you need a third component, common sense. And um, so the way the, what, what I learned yesterday was you need some science in understanding like in different eco regions, what should be present. And if you don't know, you can research that and find out. And then you have a reference of possibly what should exist. And that could be, that could be a, a, a half a dozen different things. What should exist there. Then when you get to, to actually walking in the woods, you have a point of reference to say, well, it could be this, 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 or this. Then you walk in the woods and you look for certain things. You're, you're looking for, it's just kind of like investigating things. You are looking for clues to tell you what once was there, what used to be uh, prolific, what evidence do you see? So in this case, we started seeing primarily um, South 
primarily south facing slopes. And so that, that basically dictates certain type, uh, ecotype right there in the foothills of the Ozarks, primarily south facing. And then you start saying, well, we, you know, we could see these type of species on these slopes. And then we notice, I'll give you a simple example, you know, predominantly large post oaks that if you only counted the post oaks, you're talking probably about a, oh, 30 or 40 BA. But right now we're bumping, say, close to 90. Um, and so and that's, that's because you got so much junk timber that's came up over the years from lack of manager, from lack of fire, correct? No, that's the timber that's going to uh, pay the farm off and pay my kids' college and my 401 retirement fund. We got to save that. Remember, we don't want to cut those trees. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember i mean you know that's what everybody thinks yeah so that's my sarcasm for the day that's that's not true so you're right there's junk timber there um there there's you know there's no quality timber there for a timber harvest there's a lot of timber there you would walk in those woods if you if you didn't know and you say man this is beautiful I, this is awesome man i could deer hunting here i well, I better kill a turkey in here, man. I bet you got squirrels going everywhere. You know, that's what you would think. But when you, when you start trying to analyze, um, what, what really is there, it's kind of like going to the doctor, you know, he says, Hey, look, uh, I'm, I'm going to need you to take your clothes off, put this gown on what in the world. I don't want to put no gown on, you know, but you have to start removing some layers there. You know, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to push on your side right here. You tell me if this hurts, you know, or let me feel this. Let me see that, you know, or maybe I'm going to get an x-ray. Maybe I'm going to do some more testing. Uh, and then he starts saying, well, it's not this and it's not that and it's not this. And, you know, so we're only left with a few things. And, and in this area, you know, that's predominantly post oak savanna that, you know, should be around a 30 or 40 at the highest ba and we're bumping you know close to 100 so uh there's a lot of species that should not be there but what was even more astonishing to me than that was that i could move 20 feet or 20 yards and it could change and it might just be you know the way the topography is it might be a little bit um uh, the way, you know, a ravine is coming down. So yes, in general, it's all South facing, but it kind of may wrap a little bit East and go down a little ravine and then kind of pick back up. And in that one little bitty area, it may only be a three acre area. It's different species. Right. You know, and maybe, and maybe because, of that, because of that, you got a different prescription for that. So this yeah. three acres is different than this five acres is different than this two acres. And it's different. So when you pull on to a 500 acre farm, like what you've got, like what Chuck's talking about, and you're talking about what all needs to be done, it can be overwhelming. But when you really get down to looking at what you've got, maybe you've only got one small space that has invasives. Uh, and today we're going to target autumn olive on this three acres. Uh, maybe you've got remnants of fescue coming on on another side of the farm and it's just four acres and uh you know the same way with your your prescription for uh your timber um 
you know, we're going to thin this back. We're going to leave. We're going to cut everything that's not 16 inch DBA um, uh, are, are, are bigger. And, um, you know, maybe you've only got three acres of it in that area on this portion of the south facing slope. So it breaks it down to the point that it's easier to manage. And you can say, well, you know, this is just three acres. I'll tackle that this afternoon. Right. And then tomorrow you pick another area and you say, well, all right, I think I'll do some spray. And this is just two acres over here. I'm going to tackle that this afternoon. Well, next thing you know, you've taken one bite out of a at a time. And over a period of a year or two, you've eaten elephant. So, right. That's um, right. You know, and, and, um, you know, this, this one particular block is a little over 27 acres. And there's so many different subtle changes in that 27 acres that I see now that I would have never seen even four years ago, I wouldn't have been able to see it. Right. And so if you're getting a contractor to come in, you and again, depending on what your goals are, um, you can't just blanket prescription that, you know, unless we're talking about fire and then I'm like, you know, I'm like Chuck, burn it all. Let's just burn it all. (laughs) But you can't, you can't just say, I want to reduce the basal area here by 20% or I want to reduce the basal area down to a 40 on all of this. Well, okay. So you tell a, a contractor you want to drop it to a 40 well, or a logger. Uh, so what, what's he taking? What's he leaving? And, and where should he leave white oaks and where should he leave the post oaks and where, where should he leave, you know, uh, short leaf pine and, you know, uh, there, there's just a lot of uh, difference there. So you, you really need to take time and, and, and right now is a good time, uh, to get out there and, and take some measurements, maybe, uh, carry some flagging tape and a Sharpie with you, uh, can of spray paint, whatever, where you can mark some stuff and decide. And, you know, you can even, if you're uncertain about what it might look like, you can even flag it, you know, a few trees in a couple acre area and get an idea of what it would look like. But, um, but you know, Thomas, what, what's in it, but not to cut you off there. Cause before we get too far, what you're talking about, I can validate that directly. Every, everything, most everything I do is evidence-based, you know, that I did this and what was the result, you know, based on my intimate knowledge of this particular piece of property. And we still have just by the grace of God, I probably have 40 ish acres of original pine oak savanna on this farm uh, i don't know if due to the cows that were there before us and then when we got there we started burning but it's never been manipulated it's never been uh had anything done to it and sitting in a deer stand you know looking at a big bean field which is you know when you're a kid that's what you think you're supposed to do i'm looking at all the deer standing in this edge habitat that this is about a 20 30 basal area pine oak savanna and i'm sitting there thinking you know here's all this food out there what are they doing over there and, and just continuing to see that, that that wasn't an accident. That's where the turkeys, that's where the deer, that the, all the animals wanted to be in there. And it's because there's cover, there's security. They don't have to look very far to find something to eat. You know, mixed in that savanna is, uh, you know, the summer's goldenrod. We got big blue stem. We got, I've never, we've never planted a seed of native swamp worms. So I say we did one year and then wind up putting it in ag. So I'll, I'll just can't, that cancels it out. But uh, everything we have, came from the the natural seed bank through burning but 
to your point that originally we all think, man, these are some big, pretty, mature oak timber. This is where all the deer are. And yeah, you will see deer in there when there's acres, but those deer are coming from these chest high broom sedge, blue stem savannas that we have. They, they all come from and go back to there. So they're only spending a portion of their time in these closed canopy woods. And it's to come in there and get what's available seasonally and go back to what's available 12 months out of the year. Right. So it's, yeah, that putting it back the way it, that, that literally, that was an aha moment for me that caused me to start listening to land and legacy and, and MSU deer labs and all these things that like, why do the deer want to be there? You know, that that's not a corn cut cornfield. That's not a, you know, there's not white oak acorns raining in there, but it's, it's, it's a mix of post oak and, and pine, you know, with warm season grasses around it. And, and the, the, the turkeys nest in there, the deer bed in there, they, you know, the only time they leave it is to eat or chase a doe during the rut. And that's, that's really what made me say, let me go find out why, you know, yep. which led to where I am today. What, yep. do you, what do you have over there, Chuck? Is it kind of gentle rolling hills? Um, it is. is that, that's what the topography is like, just gentle rolling? It, it's gentle rolling hills where, because we're in that river bottom and a lot of alluvial plains, there's a lot of sandy ground. So we got some pretty good sized gullies here and there. Uh, but, but uh, like I say, we're, pretty lucky just by location we have you know your typical flat river bottom that floods seasonally and from that river bottom it the, the ground starts going straight up into gently rolling hills where we have you know the savannas pine and oak savannas that i talk about so we do have some closed canopy hardwood uh, i'm going through that that growing pain that thomas mentioned that man you're looking at all those oaks and you know you've been told your whole life protect them you know right and uh, we're, we're talking about now about, you know, maybe doing some thinning some of that timber, at least in sections. And again, like I did with the deer pictures, I want to lead my family and my neighbors into, hey, let's just do this 40 acre block this year. And then and then over the next two years, I want them to see the benefits of that. You know, if we can run a fire through there and and you, we start killing deer in there, you know, we're starting to, you know, see our targets increase because of it and, you know, kind of go from there because, talking about you know the manage, manageable blocks of land tied into what with what thomas just said um i have an area that it, it's really not where i should start but but logistically it was easy to start there it's a probably 75 yards wide and 600 yard long tree line between two green fields so it's real easy to run a fire through there it's i can see both sides of it so uh, i ran a fire through there last year and got in there and started hacking and squirting, you know, some of the, the elm and, you know, not necessarily things that are bad. I just have too many of them. I needed to get some sunlight on the ground. And what I found this spring, I had a tremendous response. I, I don't know if it was lucky or what by Greenbrier, which we all know deer and everything loves that stuff. And there, we, when we hunt on our farmers, where are you going to hunt today? If it's raining, everybody knows you're going to go hunt what we call the grain drill. And literally, we have a, a 60 by 100 shop with an overhang where we back equipment and implements into. And our grain drill sits on the end, and it makes a great deer stand when it's raining because <laughs> you're under cover. So this, it, it's not the best place on the farm. I mean, who wants to sit under a barn and deer hunt? But, you know, I do when it's raining now that I'm 51 years old. But uh point being everybody drove past walked past this was a starting point to where you go hunt from well just that little bit of, of tsi and running a fire through there in a manageable block where i got the entire thing done in basically two days uh, i mean i can send you videos just this past weekend it was raining hunting, and i had multiple deer 20 yards 
born where otherwise they wouldn't have been there uh, had it not been for, uh, you know, what, what I'd done the season previous. So what it, the, the TSI reducing the basal area, you know, getting some regenerative growth caused deer to go a place they wouldn't ordinarily go. And, and, right. and it's, it's just evidence-based practices that, that you know, you, all you have to do is watch and they'll tell you what they want you to do. That's right. And that, that's the other thing that once we kind of mapped that out, we, we looked at what maybe should have been there. We took some measurements, you know, wrote those measurements down, what kind of DBH size trees that should have been there. And then, then we're able to basically set forth a prescription that says, you know, we want these species and these sizes basically left, which should result in, you know, X, Y, Z basal area. Um, so, and then, and then you can map that out and, and, you know, basically if you got on X or you whatever you use, you can focus on them little areas, just like you said, and say, okay, in this, this area right here, this is what we're going to do. I, I may not be able to deal with everything else on the farm today, but I can burn this strip, you know, like the first one you were talking about. And then one day you may, you may get out of work at say three 30. And you may decide to run, it's summertime, you may run to the farm and work till dark. And you may say, you know what, I, I can't get all of this hacked, but I'm going to hack through here until dark. And, uh, you know, you may, you may get, you may get five, 10 acres done. Who knows, you know? So, you know what, what I think is so cool to me is one, this is like really like a stress reliever for you and and then the other part of it is, uh, you know, it's a family involvement and a multi-generational type deal that's invaluable. And then you're not only just hunting it, you're, you're managing it and you're, you're really getting a co-op going. There's not a lot of people that have been as successful as you have with the co-op. And to me, which, that, you know, it might be your personality and, and that kind of a deal you might <laughs> Uh, you might be better at that, or you may have better neighbors than some folks. I don't know, but those those are the things that have really, really, uh, you know, kind of set you apart. I think, and, and of course, you know, doing what what people do because you enjoy it is is learning more about it. It is, and, and, and you know, my wife might argue with you about my sunny disposition at times, but uh, <laughs> it, it really is. Again, fortunate to have it, but so, you know, I, I have this 500 acres and, you know, what can I do with it? Well, I can do a lot, you know, the thought occurred to me, I can do a lot more with it if I go talk to Doug on our east side and Joe on our west side. And, you know, it, it, and it, it worked out. Again, I, I do think I was, I'm blessed with good neighbors. It's all, it's all generational farms that has been in their families for, for quite some time and they have a vested interest in it. Uh, we had, uh, you know, we, our relationships are so good. I, I tell this joke all the time. We, we were burning one year and uh, had a little escape on our west side, which got onto my neighbor. And uh, I told Jack, our partner in the farm, I said, don't you think we ought to call Joe? He said, no, we're not going to charge him. So, <laughs> it was, you know, and that's the kind of relationship we have because I've had those conversations before. He says, you know, I don't necessarily have the time. Joe's like me. He has a full-time job. He's a business owner in Memphis. and uh, But he understands and has the same ideas that we do. And he's told me before, hey, look, you know, if it gets on me, you know, it's okay. And, yeah. you know, let the river stop it. 
I'm, I'm fortunate right. to have some natural breaks that help me out. But, you know, just just having that that comfort level of comfort in the back of your mind when you're working with your neighbors, whether it be game management, you know, habitat management, whatever it is, it has has proven to be invaluable. I, I don't want to say I was smart enough to say this is what I'm going to go do. I just learned over time that, you know, if I want to do more than with what I have, then I need to get my neighbors involved. And they were gracious and willing enough to do that. What a how do you how would you break down your property what percentage is timber what percentage is open land what percentage is ag so i have uh, i can tell you the ag is easy that's 80 acres because i you know i mentioned we do cover crops and and again building relationships we i don't farm it obviously uh i have a guy who lives not too far from me um who i also know well and he he does again he does the cover crop thing which is a five-way blend of cereal grains you know uh, winter peas everything that's you know people planting their deer plots so my incentive to him to be an incentive to me is i have my i'm fortunate enough to have my own grain drill is that hey the minute they start cutting corn i'm right you know combine gets three rows done i'm in behind them with the drill because i want that stuff in the ground and growing while we still got adequate soil temperatures to get a good start on this stuff because the other ground he does and and you know you guys know this being around ag you can the earlier you plant that stuff the more response you're going to get before it really slows down with the shorter days and the lower soil temps you know the the other farms he does plants whenever they get done cutting corn and y'all know depending on breakdowns and weather that could be I mean, he's still planting cover crops, looking for a spring response out of them. Right. So uh, working with the farmer, I have 80 acres in ag. I have uh, of the 485 acres total, I probably have 80. I have exactly 80 acres in ag. I know that from drilling it. Uh, probably have, oh man, 100 in what I would say is the old field savanna type area like i say i was real picky about leaving a good bit of that my farmer every year hey can i know <laughs> he's wanting to plant more ground obviously and you know yeah. I, I, I made it wild to come to us and do that and you know where i i'm giving him a, a deal that you know can lets me afford to be picky about what ground you know he plants and so i probably you know in a roughly 300 acres in timber i would say and, okay. and of that timber in the river bottom some of it i'm not saying you couldn't access it to cut it but it, this is just un you know this this river's never been channeled any within 60 miles of us it you know it could look like a lake today and a stream tomorrow it, it gets in and out really quick there's lots of washes and ditches and so i, I got some really big time closed canopy stuff back there it's that's uh, probably virgin timber and you know the rest of it uh had a, a select cut one of one portion of it unfortunately was hydrated before we got there but we've had a pretty good response with, you know, the post oaks and, and various oaks that have regenerated since then. Awesome. Have you ever done any thinning, um, commercial thinning on any of your timber anywhere? I've not done any commercial thinning. I've done some on, on my own. Again, I'll just go pick an area. And, and I like picking on the high graded areas because, again, you know, everything I do is evidence based. And, you know, meaning I did it last year and it either turned out terrible or, or it worked out really good. And, and what I you know, either from, you know, doing cut stump treatments or just cut stump where you get the, you know, the cut, cut stump regenerative growth, you know, that the deer like, yeah. um, I, I've seen that to work really well. So I, I, I'm focusing on the, we have probably 60 acres adjacent to our river bottom. And you, and you can tell back then it was, 
you know, as far as the loggers could get without having to deal with a bunch of mud and, you know, logistical issues to get timber out. So because it's been high grade and it's mainly just Tupelo gum and wing elm, wing elm and gum, I have a little more confidence in going in there and say, hey, what happens if I go in here and drop two acres worth of trees, you know, and then run a fire through here? And that's built up my confidence to start doing that in my oaks. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we've started having conversations about, hey, what about this 40 acre block of timber about having it select cut? We can put a little money in the bank. But my focus is on habitat. Right. Right. And it's, you know, like you just said, it's it's there's not many disadvantages and there's not many, not much heartache after the fact when you go in a timber stand and just cut junk. Um, you're really not losing anything. A lot of what we're cutting has zero timber value today. It's going to have zero timber value next year or the year after. And it's just taking up sunlight that something beneficial could be, could be. Hey, and you know, here's the deal too, Hunter. Uh, I've got some post oaks that are at least 150 years old. Yeah. I mean, they're, they are big trees, big diameter trees. They have been there uh, in poor, so, poor, poor soil, south-facing slopes. But when you look at them, even if I decided to cut them today, I might make a cross tie them. They're short, they're squatty, you know, they're, they're, it's not a timber value. Um, even some of the white oaks that I have that are on kind of a, a east or southeast facing slope, um, some of those would make uh, you know a good a good log. But some of those, even as they start wrapping around the toe of that hill, you know they're great mass producers. They're beautiful trees. They have a lot of character, but they don't have as much timber value. You know, they're not going to the stave mill. They, they, you know, that you might get a cross tie or two out of this one and, you know, that kind of a deal. So I think a lot of times people struggle with the fact that, what do you mean talking about junk timber? You know, because it takes, you, you really have to be around a logger for a, a good while and understand what they're needing for, for actually money and to produce something to comprehend the fact that, Oh, I, I understand now what he's saying about junk timber. This is not, it's not of commercial value. And when you are overstocked, it's not a wildlife value. Right. No, no doubt about it. And I, I think it's been a few episodes ago, y'all had Derek Denny on here, who's a forester. And he, he said some things that I, you know, again, this is how I learned, no educational background in it. Uh, he talked about being in, and you know, Derek's a forester, um, being in an area where you have some closed canopy and, and in my particular case that was high graded. So it's literally all junk. And, and to Thomas's comment, he's hundred percent right. Junk today may not be junk next year. It's depending on what the timber market wants. Now there's well, some true. trees forever be junk, but you know, Derek talked about, you know, you may, and, and my woods identify exactly as what he was talking about it's 80% undesirable species, but you got a white oak, random white oak over here, the overcup or the, and if you left unattended, that tree could be 60 years old and still just be bigger around as your thigh because it's not getting what it needs. So it makes me comfortable as a, as a landowner and somebody without a, you know, substantial educational background in that listening to him, a forester say that, Hey, if you go in there and cut all that proverbial junk around it, 
and, you know, let some sunlight hit the ground, let some sunlight hit that tree in particular, well, then you're just propagating what we consider a valuable species and and wildlife. So that's, I've just, you know, you're talking about eating elephant. I'm I'm eating elephant one bite at a time. You know, I'll go in that high graded area and I'll identify eight or 10, you know, things that I deem a benefit, whether it's the white oak or red oak or whatever. And I'll go in there and release it, you know, by cutting out a, you know, a half acre around it. Yep. You know, create a wildlife opening and, you know, a beneficial situation for that particular type of tree. That's right. Well, That's right. Hunter's got Hunter's got an area that uh, I went over and looked at a couple weeks ago that's got some just massive cow oaks. I mean, they're huge, swamp chestnuts, cow oaks, whatever you want to call them. They're huge. And now he's got a lot of uh, – small regeneration in there that that it's all getting close canopy and and nothing's nothing's doing well and so we talked about a couple ways to to address that but if you open her back up like you're talking almost do a crop tree release open her back up hunter hunter likes to talk about poker i don't know if you really even play poker or not but he's like look man throw some cards back fold the fold you know draw another hand so go in there and cut all that little bitty stuff and then run a fire through it and see what you get that starts regenerating. And if you if you start getting some swamp chestnuts that regenerate, then, you know, after a fire or two, you may want to lay off of it to let those trees come on good, maybe lay off of it three years. Then pick the ones you want to keep and get rid of the ones you want to, you, 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 you don't want to keep because eventually those trees will replace the big ones that you have now, or in your case, Chuck, like where it's been maybe high graded in seven to 15 years, you may see something totally different. If you keep managing it like that, mm-hmm. you know, if you just get rid of that junk and let that one white Oak, man, the next thing, you know, you know, squirrels are carrying acorns around stuff's happening. You walk in there one day and go, golly, I got, I got little waist high trees in here everywhere. And that's exactly my goal, you know, that I'm, I'm hoping to see eventually. Uh, it, it's, it's in, like I say, it's in a river bottom area and it's, it's a type of ground that, you know, depending on how much rain we had, you could walk all the way through there with no problems, or you may get 10 feet in there and go to your waist. So there's, there's not a lot of opportunity to get equipment in there other than myself and a chainsaw. And, and like I say, I know what we got now, they're non-mass bearing trees. There's, they have essentially no wildlife value and they've closed out the canopy to, everything else that could produce that so again you know to, to use the poker analogy throw your hand in and try something else and, and that's exactly what i got going on right now it won't do me any good but maybe my grandson will get to hunt in there one day and you know put his tree on a white oak or put his deer stand on a white oak tree yep, yep. That's, that's right. exactly right that's exactly right well fellas i hate to cut this one short I hadn't seen any cows go by the doorway yet but it's getting pretty sporty here right now thunder and lightning and and it is pouring down rain. I'm over here at my office and my black lab, she's uh, curled up underneath my feet here. She's scared of the thunder. Um, so I think we'll cut this short. But uh, y'all, if you got any questions for Chuck, if you want to reach out to him, if you want more information about some of the stuff that he's doing and how he's uh, some of the success he's seen, he's very active on Facebook under uh, Turkey Hunters Reversing the, the Decline, as well as uh uh hunters breaking the ceiling groups um so uh or you can uh, holler at us and we'll we'll put you in touch with him but uh 
Um, Chuck, we kind of killed. If you're what? in Memphis, if you're in Memphis, you're going to rob a bank or uh, hijack somebody's car or whatever, there's a good chance you'll get to meet him. There you go. There you go. Yeah, especially out in the county, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, we hopefully don't get to meet anybody that way. But, yeah, I, I love to be engaged in that. That's how I learned. That's how I met guys like y'all, you know. And, and I certainly don't know all the answers, but I, I, I generally know somebody that can get one. Yep, yep. There you go. Um, so we killed several birds with this stone. You know, we talked about how uh, uh, a landowner spotlight, which is something that we enjoy doing. And, uh, you know, we also touched on uh, – uh, managing uh, habitat with a full-time job and uh, wife and kids and life and and stuff. So so I feel like it's been a pretty good podcast. But uh, one of the things we like to do with our landowner spotlights is uh, we like to give out a free pair of light boots, courtesy of our buddies over at the Light Boot Company, um, and they're Mississippi-based guys as well. So uh, uh, we'll we'll keep you on here after uh, we go off air, and we'll get your mailing address and your size, and uh, we'll uh, we'll have those guys get a pair of boots to you. But uh, we appreciate you coming on and, and, uh, that, and talking about what you've been up to. They're also known as felony flyers in Memphis. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have no shortage of those. I, I can't thank you guys enough, A, for the boots and B, having me on just, you know, to validate kind of, you know, what I love to do and what I've, you know, spent my time learning and, you know, soaking up everything I could, you know, to get to be on here with you guys is, is just, you know, some, it's some validation for that and I genuinely appreciate it. Well, it's a breath of fresh air when when we get somebody on that's uh, that's doing the right thing on their habitat and they're they're uh, being successful. They're they're seeing the fruits of their labor. So we well, uh, and let let me confess something to you real quick before before we pull the plug on this deal. You know, a lot of times, especially, I don't mean this in a bad way, but Chuck, Chuck knows probably what I'm talking about. In in the fire service, in law enforcement, in the military, sometimes you never know if somebody's full of crap or not. And, um, uh, so as soon as Chuck told me he was the Shelby County guy, I, I had to do some checking up on him and, uh, see, is this guy legit or is he, is he full of crap? And, uh, <laughs> uh, so I called a, a friend and I said, Hey, you know, this Chuck Mays guy. And, uh, he said, yeah, I know him really well. And I cannot begin to tell you the compliments that he paid you. Um, for I mean, like, and this guy is not the guy that's going to pay you any compliments unless you can absolutely or 100% legit. And um, he paid you more compliments than than I've ever heard him pay anyone. And uh, he said, "You are you are a fine officer. You are the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest." And I can't even tell you all the stuff he said good about you. And I said, "Well." That's good to hear. And from what I can tell, he does really good habitat work. So this ought to work out well. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that, man. It's a true benefit to do what you love. And I have loved my career in law enforcement. I'm not going to lie. I am tickled to death that I have more behind me than I do in front of me. But I, I genuinely, genuinely appreciate you and him for those words. I, I've, I've spent a long time working hard trying to do it the right way. And, and I appreciate that. Well, that always means a lot. Everybody likes to uh, likes to be validated by your by your peers. So, uh, oh yeah, and I have to agree. What I know about you has been been some good stuff as well. So, 
Well, folks, we appreciate y'all tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you next week on uh, Sawdust and Fire. Thanks for listening. <laughs>